Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Top Class, the OECD's education and skills podcast. My name is Henry, and I work in the OECD Directorate for Education and Skills. I'm very pleased to be joined by Lucy Crean, the educational consultant, former teacher and author of Cleverlands, a book about her journey through the world's top performing education systems. Lucy, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Thank you for coming uh, to see us in Paris. So you're known as an educational explorer. Your book Cleverlands speaks about your journey through Finland, Canada, Singapore, Japan and Shanghai. I think my first question would be about PISA, which for listeners is the Programme for International Student Assessment. You were a teacher before you went on your journey and wrote about these top performing systems. But when was your first encounter with PISA and with OECD data on education in general? Hmm. Yes, I was a I was a teacher in a, a school in southwest London where I was teaching science. And my first encounter with OECD data and PISA was in the news. And because a lot of the time when politicians are implementing new educational reform in England, and I, I know elsewhere also, they will refer to PISA data and what other countries are doing to justify that reform and give reasons for why they're doing it. So to be honest, my first driver was frustration okay. because I was in a school where a lot of the behaviours of teachers and certainly the head teacher was being driven by accountability pressures and the minister for education at the time in England was saying we're going to strengthen the league tables but essentially we're going to bolster this accountability system because that's what countries and top performing education systems are doing and I I was confused I thought well gosh it doesn't seem to be working here because how I'm seeing the effects of this in the classroom and in, at the school level is it was driving all sorts of, of teaching to the test type behaviours um, because this was seen to be so important, this accountability system. So that led me to read a bit more. Um, I, I went to study for a master's and, and I did have a look at accountability, school accountability around the world and how that's done. Um, so that's what initially got me reading about top performing education systems and looking at the OECD analysis on this issue. And so from there, you started your journey. But the countries you chose were the top performing PISA countries. They have the best results in the PISA test. You went for Finland, Canada, Japan, Shanghai and Singapore. Mm-hmm. There were other reasons aside from PISA results you chose those. That's right. So so the countries I chose were all in the, the top 10 um, for PISA 2009, because I was starting my journey in 2011. That was the most recent data. So had a look at the top 10. And to be honest, I originally intended to go to eight countries, but then realised that understanding the entirety of an education system and how it all fits together is quite a mammoth task. Uh, I, I couldn't quite handle um, doing that in eight places. Um, but I chose I chose those five in particular, Shanghai and Singapore, because they were the top two performers in the world. So I wanted to know how on earth are they getting such incredible results. I didn't do just straightforwardly the top five because it would mainly have been East Asian countries, which are you know very interesting, but there's not much diversity in there. So I chose Finland because it was the top performer in Europe and Canada similarly because it was another continent, also did very well in North America, but with quite a diverse population. So Canadians come from all over the world. They have quite high immigration. So I wanted to see how they managed to get those high results with such a diverse population. And then Japan, again, one of the top performers, but I wanted to make sure that I was looking at a bigger country as well, because Singapore and Shanghai are both, um, well, Singapore is a city-state, Shanghai is a, a massive city, but I wanted to have a look at a whole country. So Japan, 127 million people, I thought, fitted the bill quite nicely. 
of all the high-performing systems you visited, what would you say the main thing that they were doing differently in the classroom that could result in these high PISA scores? Uh, was there a recurring theme between them? Was there one thing that they were all doing that's different, or is they were doing well for different reasons? So you asked what they were doing in the classroom, and that is a yeah. different question to asking what they're doing at the school or the system level. So I will answer that specific question, because at a system level, they're all doing very well in very different ways. So the policies are often organised quite differently. Assessments organised differently. The way in which they get teachers educated is organised differently. But what that leads to, I think quite remarkably, is similarity in terms of actual teaching practices, which is not what I was expecting at all. Because if you think about sometimes what you read in the paper or, or certainly stereotypes about the way in which Finnish teachers teach and Singaporean teachers teach, to take two perhaps seemingly extreme examples, you imagine that in Finland it'll be... Um, the teacher will be more of a guide on the side and students will be working in, in groups on projects and, you know, wearing dungarees and, and colouring in with crayons. You know, I'm, I'm deliberately being facetious now, but that's that's just the stereotype of Finland. And the stereotype of, of Singapore is that you have students sitting in, in rows, the teacher is standing at the front of the classroom, giving a lecture for half an hour and the students are just writing down notes and doing lots of tests. Um, and that is quite, quite different from what I actually saw. So I spent three weeks at least in, in classrooms in each country. I taught, um, I spent a lot of time observing, I interviewed teachers as well about why they were doing what they were doing. And, and rather than either of those extremes, what I saw in those lessons was teacher directed in the sense that the teachers had a very clear idea of what they wanted the students to understand and be able to do by the end of that lesson. Um, it often would start with the, the teacher giving some kind of explanation or doing some kind of demonstration or proposing some kind of problem to the children at the beginning. It would be whole class, so they'd be bringing the whole class along with them. They'd be going through the curriculum at the same pace, but it would be enormously active in terms of the thinking. So there'll be lots of class discussion. So after the teacher, or even during, while the teacher's explaining something, they will be asking the students questions, the students will be asking them questions, and the teacher will be very, very skillfully manipulating that discussion so that what children are, are learning and saying is building on what other children are learning and saying. Um, so let me give you an example. In a maths lesson, for example, the teacher might give a little explanation and then get students into groups to work on a particular problem for, let's say, five minutes, maybe ten minutes. Then get the students to feedback, right, what, what do you think the answer is? Not actually say, yes, that's right or no, that's wrong, but rather say, OK, that's interesting. How did you get that? Can you explain your thought processes? And then to the other group, hmm, what do you think about what she just said? Can you think of a different way that you would do it? So very active learning in the sense of students are really thinking, but still very much directed by the teacher who has a clear idea of what they want the students to learn puts students into different groups, has different activities that are quite pacey throughout the lesson and then gives children time to practice independently and what they've learnt. And then finally, <laughs> making sure that the teacher is, is assessing the students, not so that they can write a score in a, in a book, but so that they understand how much the students have understood and can plan their lesson for the next time. So that might just look like asking the whole class a question and having students write an answer on a whiteboard or hands up or students answering a single question at the end. But there's always, always something that allows the teacher to really understand whether or not the students have met that learning objective. So it's a lot of active, active learning in groups? Including in groups. 
But I think the the difference perhaps between my stereotypes about Finland, let's say, and, and what I saw not only in Finland but in East Asian countries too, is that group work was was in five or ten minute or maximum 15 minute chunks. It wasn't, right, get on with the project that you started last week and I'll just come around and support different groups. It was very much in a quite a structured environment. I wanted to get your take, thinking of groups, on something you talked about in the book, uh, in the Japan chapter quite a lot, is Japan's focus on group learning. I think they were, they were called hands. Is that oh, yes. Right? Hands. You're a teacher from the UK, and there is a little bit more of an individu- individual uh, culture in the UK, uh, teaching mm. the individual. But Japan focuses more on these hands, on these group group learning. And I believe in the primary, it starts and they have smaller groups. Mm-hmm. And then they, when they get older, the class becomes the group. I wanted to get your take on whether you think that approach is better or more conducive to better learning than, than the individual approach. So it's a, it's a really interesting question and it's a really interesting practice. So what, just to explain a little more about what Han means and look like. So Han is the Japanese word for group. And it means that those students will do everything together. So whenever, as I was just explaining, if there's a group activity in the class, they will work in that hun and it'll be four or five kids, for example, in in a primary setting. They will prepare for lunch together. They will clean the school together because in Japan, children clean the school. They don't have cleaners to teach them responsibility. Um, And then that hun will change every couple of weeks. Behaviour, I think, is the really interesting factor here in terms of it's actually used as a behavioural management mechanism because the teacher won't criticize a particular student for not having sat at the still yet or not having done their work or whatever it is they will say oh I noticed that that blue hun isn't ready yet and the effect that has is that the other children in that group will say hey hey come on come on quick sit down we, we're gonna get in trouble or we you know and and it means that the the social need is actually what's driving the but that behavior for that child so I think actually it has more of an effect on on socialization and, and how children work together as a group than it does on kind of traditional learning in the sense of understanding a maths problem. So it's not group work in the sense that the whole class is working together in a group to solve a problem. Um, but from a, again, from a behavioral perspective, but but actually a little bit from a kind of competitive perspective, the class are a unit. The, rather than having different students in, in different subjects for different lessons based on ability, in Japan they have... The whole, the whole class stays together, mixed ability, um, whatever lesson they're in. And they will do, there'll be a sports day team together, they will put on a show together for the cultural festival. But, but also in terms of homework and in terms of tests, tests as well, because they're mixed ability groups, um, and it's the same in every subject, the teachers can say things like, oh, wow, I noticed that the other class beat you in this uh, particular assignment. How do you feel about that? And, and there is a bit more of a sense of students... Um, supporting each other and bringing each other along because actually how they do as a class matters rather than just how they do as an individual. I wouldn't be fair to to talk about this though without also mentioning that this can have a negative effect in terms of bullying because if you do have someone this is a lot of focus on on the group and fitting in with the group um, in Japan and if you do have someone that is a bit different it's a bit unusual you know sometimes children are just a bit different um it can and does in some schools in Japan lead to bullying um, of a different nature from from bullying in other countries. Bullying happens everywhere in the world. But in, in Japan, it's it can often be the case that it's the whole class against one particular individual. Thinking about well-being um, and bullying, you've mentioned Japan and um, what can possibly happen with this culture of Han and bullying. And 
Is there any other well-being disparities that you've noticed across uh, across nations? Did students seem more at ease or more, I don't know, happy, if you want to use that word, in some nations rather than others? So I think the data is very interesting on this, actually, the PISA, the PISA data, because when students are asked how happy they are at school, you get another surprising result in that Singaporean students, who are tested an awful lot, they report being happier at school than and Finnish students. Now, I, d- I think there's, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, but I think my analysis of that or explanation of that is that while overall, I think Finnish children probably do have better well-being, Singaporean children, when they're at school, that's actually the fun time. That's when they are with their friends, when they are in lessons that I was describing that, that are quite active and, and quite engaging. It's when they go home, it's, it's in contrast to what they're doing when they go home, which is often private tutoring and lots and lots of homework so in contrast therefore school is the fun place in Finland schools where you're working and they don't have that much homework compared to other countries certainly not compared to Singapore and therefore in contrast you know if they are I know it sounds like a a stereotype but playing in the woods because there are a lot (laughs) there are a lot of woods there's a lot of forests (laughs) in Finland then of course school relatively is going to be somewhere where you find it quite boring um, I do think there are well-being challenges in particularly Singapore and Shanghai where how well you do in tests is extremely important. And that's partly culturally driven. That's partly because education is held up as being the most important thing and education fairly narrowly defined as getting into the best high school, getting into the best university, getting the best job. But I think that's driven by the exam systems in those countries too. Um, I think the fact that Singapore has a, a high stakes exam at age 12 which determines which secondary school students get into and even which exams they then take. So it can determine your whole future. Unsurprisingly, parents therefore are driving their children to do a lot of work because it has a big impact on their future. And it's the same in in Shanghai. While officially junior high schools are not supposed to select on ability, the the rumours on the ground are that 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 does actually happen in many schools and and certainly the, the best schools will have things like parent interviews um, parent, interviews. parent interviews where the parents are also being assessed in terms of should we let this child in or not so and and the, the tests at the end of junior high school are hugely important in Shanghai too so I think it is the importance of tests that is actually driving children to be overly overly worked and I think overly stressed and that's reflected in the people you spoke to when you were there yes absolutely so so the people that I stayed with so I lived with teachers um, in every country I went to and the you know I stayed with a particular teacher called Jenny and her her daughter, and Jenny is not a kind of a typical tiger mum. You know she's she's absolutely very sweet, very lovely lady. Clearly loves her daughter a huge amount. Bought her bought her a Taylor Swift t-shirt um, just just <laughs> because she could one evening when I was there. Came home with matching t-shirts for herself and her daughter, and yet her daughter was doing typically three or four hours of homework a night. And on the weekends, she was going to additional maths lessons, additional English lessons, opera singing, because because she had to. And that's what, you know, that's what Jenny said. It's like, I don't want her to be spending all of her time working, but I've got to keep up because if the other parents are also paying for private tuition, then she's going to do worse on that test and she's not going to get into a good high school. There was one point in the book that uh, I wanted to talk about it was quite poignant. You visited Hiroshima and you made a very, very good point about what's the point. You know, the people who constructed the bomb will have been very, very good at maths and very, very good at science. Mm-hmm. And you, you made this very impactful point about what's the point in education 
if what we then use it for turns out to be mm-hmm. destructive. Uh, I just wanted to get your take on that because I'm sure there was, when you were there at the time, there was probably mm. more that was going through your mind than just the little quotation mm, that yeah. I saw in the book. So something which isn't picked up, I don't think, by big data, because it, it perhaps would be inappropriate to do so, is something which gets to the heart of education, which is the relationships between students and teachers and the way in which, in the words of one Japanese head teacher, teachers bring up the children. I mean, especially in this day and age where many parents are very busy and and aren't perhaps there when children get home, teachers are bringing up the children. And in in the best schools, you will have this environment where those relationships between the teachers and the students is really strong. And they're not just teaching them the subjects and the concepts. They are also teaching them how do you behave and not in the sense of do you, you know, stay quiet when told to stay quiet and do your homework, but how should you function in society? How do you relate to other people? And the Japanese are very big on this, actually. They have a lesson called moral education where they talk about things like that. How do you make sure that, in, in the words of one Japanese student I spoke to, that you're strict on yourself but kind to others? You know, it's 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 the self-discipline as well as the being generous and, and, and being truthful. Um, and I think that's a very important element of school as well, that we need to make sure that there remains time for and that curriculum curricula are not so overly full of content that there isn't time for this these really important discussions which won't be scheduled necessarily into a timetable it'll be something that you talk about during form time when there's been a case of bullying at your school or when someone's mother's died that's when as a teacher you have these really really important conversations with the children in your class and I think one thing that can really help with that in terms of those relationships and the ability to to talk to children about these kinds of things is in some countries where rather than having a different teacher each year, they will have the same teacher for either all of primary school or all of junior high school. So year seven, eight and nine, it'll be the same form teacher in Finland, for example. And if that form teacher is also an English teacher, they will always teach their form English or if they're a maths teacher, the same. So they're actually getting quite a lot of of time with those children to really make sure they know them as individuals. We're unfortunately uh, running out of time a little bit, but there was one final thing I wanted to ask you about. You journeyed across all these countries. Was there any one memory of just kind of outstanding teaching that floored you and that you that sticks in your mind? Perhaps this is surprising, but I'm going to give an example from very recently in Sweden. Um, and maybe a nice note to finish on in that it's not the case that all of the best practice is in the countries where they have the highest PISA results. This one lesson in, in Sweden last week, where she was teaching upper primary school fractions. And this was in a school in um, in Malmo, in a very tricky area where there have been reports of shootings and gangs recently. And these children, none of them were born in Sweden. This is all children who've, who've been fleeing conflict and other reasons for, for immigrating. And on the board, she had different kind of fractions, like pies made out of Velcro, which she stuck on the board. But she started the whole lesson with a dance. Um, she got all of the students to to do a dance that was about area um, <laughs> and about how what, how do you tell the area of a, of a circle? How do you tell the area of a square? And they were acting this out. And then later in the lesson, she was actually able to refer back to, remember when we did this? And she did the motions with her arms that were triggering that memory in, in the students. So she started with that. She led a, an excellent explanation of the of, of how to do fractions with children very much participating and coming up and giving answers and taking away fractions and adding fractions. And then the students were practising that themselves and she went around supporting them. So not that 
unusual a lesson, but the children were all hanging off her every word. Um, and you, you can't see learning. But you could almost see the learning going on in that lesson. And certainly she could, by the end of the lesson, having looked at the work that they'd done, see that they had understood the concept. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I just want to thank Lucy for joining us today. And uh, I wish you all the luck in your future journeys. You thank learn you. more about these high-flying countries and maybe bring us more lessons on the ground of what's, what's really going on in classrooms. And thanks to everybody for listening. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to subscribe and follow the OECD Twitter account for education, which can be found at OECD Edu Skills, as well as our education blog, which can be found at oecdeducationtoday.blogspot.com. Thank you very much again, and until next time.